Welcome to episode seven of the Paperclip podcast. I am your host, Brett Stone, and we're presented by BSDA. And whether you're a regular listener or a new listener of the show, thank you. You're appreciated. It's always great to, uh, to have some ears on the show. And on today, we're, um, we're going to talk Facebook promotions. So are you asking for likes or shares as part of any promotions or competitions that you're running at the moment? Well, let's, let's kind of explore that a little bit more. Um, our very special guest today is Blake Lawrence, who is the CEO of Yellow Market. You're the first person that I've said CEO to. <laughs> um, and obviously, as always, we'll wrap up the show with, uh, with a, a great quote about marketing or advertising. So we'll kick things off by talking a little bit about Facebook promotions. So uh, who has seen a, a competition on Facebook where as part of your chances to win or to get additional entries, you can like their page or share the competition or tag a friend or friends for additional entries or multiple entries. Have you seen anything like that on Facebook, Blake? A lot. A lot of content on Facebook. Okay. So whether people realize it or not, um, that's actually against the Facebook terms and conditions around promotions. So the... I guess the, the, the way that they write it is that promotions may be administered on pages, groups, events, or within apps on Facebook. Personal timelines and friend connections must not be used to administer promotions. So the examples they give are share on your timeline to enter or share on a friend's timeline to get additional entries and tag your friends in this post to enter are not permitted. So to be really clear, if you're running a competition, if you're saying to people, you know, um, tag a friend and you'll get an extra entry or just tag a friend and you get an entry in the drawer or, um, you know, share our page or share this post on, on your timeline or especially on a friend's timeline, um, all of those are kind of off limits. And the way that they will impose like their... I guess their rules are in a couple of ways. So first time you'll kind of, you'll get a warning and they'll ask you, they'll probably pause the post or um, suspend the post and they'll, they'll send you a message saying, don't do it. And then the other way that they can impose it, which I've actually seen uh, an example of where a page had more than 100,000 followers, they routinely use this tactic to build their audience and to get more likes and shares and kind of momentum. And as a result of that, they actually had their page shut down because they ignored multiple warnings. Now, um, when you've got an audience of 100,000 people, obviously this, this um, podcast is recorded in Melbourne in, in Australia. So um, anybody that's in Melbourne or probably in Australia really would know the size of the MCG, which is our, our biggest sporting stadium here and it holds about 100,000 people. Imagine having the MCG full of people that love you and your content and all of a sudden tomorrow, they're just gone. You've got nobody. And, and you know, if, you're, if your whole business or a large part of your business relies on Facebook or the, and the community that you've built on Facebook, um, doing those kind of things where you risk getting posts or your page suspended or, or even deleted um, is a pretty risky maneuver because it's essentially like being in the early 2000s and having a, an email database with 100,000 people on it and somebody just coming along and taking that away. So... 
I would say to you, my best advice is not to do it at all <laughs> because it could cause you trouble. So let's move from one potentially tricky situation to another. Imagine you're driving or using one of those huge pieces of machinery and it breaks down. And a breakdown can cost that kind of business thousands, maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost work. So you obviously need to get parts and get it fixed as soon as possible at the best possible price, um, but how? So let's introduce our guest today, who is Blake Lawrence from Yellow Market. Blake, how are you doing? Very good, very good. Yourself? Good, thanks. We were talking a little bit about, uh, we, we do share a, a common interest in the NBA. Mm -hmm. So we were talking a little bit about the, uh, the latest moves, which is in particular LeBron going to LA. I don't want to talk too much about it because I know you, you've got some sore feelings about what's going on. I've going been up very upset the last couple of days. I'm more upset about Boogie going to the, the Warriors. <laughs> anyway, we'll, cut, we'll talk about that yeah. another time. So tell us about Yellow Market um, and where the idea came from. Well, initially I started my career when I was 15 years old in 2003. Mm -hmm. So I started my plant mechanic apprenticeship in a small mining town in Kalgoorlie called Western Australia. And during that period between 2003 and 2004, I came to the conclusion that a lot of mining companies in particular were facing a problem where, where they have a, you know, a multi-brand fleet they were struggling with a procurement to secure parts for every single brand of equipment. So that's initially where the idea started from. And also I noticed the impact on businesses when a machine is broken down. Uh, for example, what I was working on as an apprentice, uh, the cost of that equipment being down per hour due to, it could be a large part or a small part was quite significant. and I. I could found a solution that could be provided to that problem. So talk us through what that's like when you, I guess if you own that piece of machinery. So can you give us an example of like um, maybe one piece of machinery that, that you, um, you, you know, that's common in your, in your industry or in your business um, and what that would mean if, if it's, you know, unable to do what it needs to do? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, I'll give you an example. So in my industry, an excavator at a mine site is deemed the money maker. Mm -hmm. Basically that pulls the material or the commodity out of the ground, places it in the back of a, a dump truck, and that gets delivered to the mill and it gets processed and that's how mining companies make money. Mm -hmm. So if an excavator is down, uh, I'll give you an example of, of one machine in particular that's fairly common. This is an 800 ton uh, excavator, mm -hmm. and per hour that that machine is down is one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Wow, that's that's a lot. <laughs> so if a, if a part is unavailable or cannot be sourced, you possibly could be looking at millions of dollars. Right, in lost like labor, and in time. lost time, labor, uh, fleet utilization. Right. Okay. And what happens when you know when a when a um, a piece of machinery like that can't work, what happens to everything else as well? Like, does everything else just stop? The f operation ceases. Right. So it's like everybody goes home or... Basically. Basically, everyone goes home or they need to find alternatives very quickly. 
Right, okay. And what excites you about Yellow Market? It excites me to provide a, basically to fix people's problems, regardless of it's small or large, and also offer alternatives to their problems to either reduce the price or provide a better availability for them in regards to parts or service utilisation. And so I think you you touched on this a little bit earlier, but you studied mechanical engineering at university. So tell us how that helped you in Yellow Market. It helped me because it, it gave me a really good understanding of equipment and how it actually works and how to repair it and how to maintain it. And I think the best overall skill set I got out of that was basically having the ability to wear X-ray vision and look at a machine and identify the fault or the part and what's required and quite quickly. Right, okay. I'd imagine that's, that, that would give you a significant advantage. Yeah, it gives a significant advantage understanding the systems of the machine and also the components, locations, and the fundamentals of how the machine actually works. Yeah, well, um, if you had to do it all again, knowing what you know now, would you still go to university or would you skip it and why? I wouldn't skip it. Mm-hmm. I think it gives younger people structure to their day and a goal to achieve but also makes the certain person uh, understand what their purpose is in life and select that purpose. Right, okay. So did you feel like you were always going to, like you were destined to be like an engineer? No. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you come to that? uh, I've always, so I come from a, a family that's heavily entrenched as uh, engineers or tradesperson in particular. Mm -hmm. And growing up in a mining town, there wasn't a lot of choice, but uh, I've always been really mechanically minded and found it naturally easier uh, than other other peers in my class. And I think that's in relation to my upbringing and where I've grown up and also my family being involved through the industry for 130 years all up combined. So, um, yeah, I found it easy, but um, also money also can lure people as well. Right, okay. Okay. Um, So, do you have a co-founder? No. And why not? I don't have one because initially uh, starting it, uh, people need to take the leap of faith and where I was positioned at the time in my life and career wise and obviously being really passionate about the concept Mm -hmm. at the time I couldn't find anyone that was interested to to come on the journey Mm -hmm. Uh, but any advice I have for any other aspiring entrepreneurs out there I do recommend having a co-founder and for multiple reasons okay so let's let's explore that a little bit more then because in the, the previous um, show, we, we spoke to Marshall from Parcel and he, he talked about the, the, um, how he'd go to meetings and, and pitch his idea regularly and how people would always tell him, you need a co-founder, you need a tech co-founder. So um, tell us a bit more about, um, obviously, why you... Um, obviously, you said 
you know, you couldn't find somebody that was as passionate or as dedicated perhaps as you'd like in a mm-hmm. co-founder. Having said that, um, you also said that, you know, you highly recommend people having a co-founder. Mm-hmm. Maybe tell us a bit more about why you feel that way. I feel that way because uh, I've always looked at the, the Apple setup from its inception of exactly that fact. I think you do need, if you've got an idea that's, you know, very out there or different to the normal, I think you do need the sales guy and the technical guy. Now, I've trained myself in the journey to be technical, Mm -hmm. but to fast track that, having two co-founders and sharing the workload, I think if I could do it all over again, that's what I would do. I would go find another co-founder to not only assist with the workload, but accelerate the idea. Mm-hmm. And so as you, you obviously, you know, you've been, Yellow Market's been around for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And typically in that time, you know, you would have experienced a number of challenges around um, technical type issues, I'd imagine. So, um, you know, what were one of the, uh, I guess what was probably the, the single greatest challenge that you've fa- faced so far and how did you overcome that? The single greatest uh, challenge I've faced thus far in in our, in my world is uh, capital and raising capital. Uh, that's been the biggest challenge. Uh, in the early stages of any uh, venture or business or idea, um, before it's an actual business and before you're completing the testing, Getting funds to test was really difficult. Um, I've been lucky thus far, but also a lot of hard work's gone into it. So from a capital raising perspective or borrowing against something to get that capital to start the idea or the business, uh, that, that's been the most challenging. And how did you, how did you go about sourcing that, that capital? Uh, I was... The best thing I found was is, is leveraging your existing connections or friends or family or any associates that you may have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that the easiest to start with because it's not what you know, it's who you know. And mm-hmm. a lot of times in the world, that's what works and that's you get to places a lot quicker than other people. Uh, but I've always, I was lucky. So I had a, um, a family and a relative that that knew someone that was interested and was industry specific as well and understood the problems that they were facing was what yellow market went out to it to fix and solve and basically within the space of six months we agreed and we had our first round so great what's the best advice you've been given <laughs> the best advice I've been given is don't start a business or a venture unless you're going to give it everything you've got and you're passionate about it because basically I've seen a lot of startups fail due to the lack of passion and going through the trough of sorrow is a really dark and lonely place to be. Yeah. Uh and That's for sure. the trough of sorrow is, you know, guys like Travis from Uber and Airbnb all went through the trough of sorrow. And it ranges from a space of a year to possibly five years where you can go through some lows. Obviously, inception stays. The idea is great. It's positive. You know, you're high in energy. You're like, let's go out. Let's go do this. 
but then you come back down to reality when you start facing those challenges, either a technical challenge that you need to meet, uh, a capital uh, challenge that you need to meet, and that can get you down into the trough of sorrow. So you need to realise that and combat it. So. I think you probably answered the next question with that as well. <laughs> by, by what's the best advice you can give to our listeners? I think that's that's great advice. I think yeah. so. Have you, you know, getting a little bit personal? I get. Have you experienced that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I I do read a lot of uh, examples and, and you know biographies on on people in similar fields or industries that face that challenge. So I really recommend anyone to read a lot of books. That's probably a good start. Mm-hmm. But also, um, if you can't give it your 100% and dedicate, and if you're not sure if you're really passionate about it, I don't think you should start it. That, that's mm. probably you know that's probably the best advice I can give listeners. I mean, there's examples even on Shark Tank, which is quite a popular show in Australia, of, of people spending you know $350,000 putting their house up against it. And basically, it's been a failed idea. So mm-hmm. you need to be committed and you need to give it everything you got. And it, and it basically takes over your life. So if you're not prepared to do that, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that you should start it. Absolutely. Um, we've, we've spoken about that on the show previously where, um, you know, the, the, the difference, most, most people that don't have a startup or don't have um, a small business of their own, um, it, it can be very difficult for them to completely understand that when you work for somebody, you turn up at the time that you're supposed to start mm. and you, you work. Mm. How hard you work is, is kind of up to you, um, but there's no real incentive other than not getting fired. And then uh, you leave at the end of the day when your day finishes at you know, whatever time it is. But when you have your your own business there is no start time and end time it's just all the time all the time i also probably the other thing is a lot of us startup founders and entrepreneurs always speak about the journey mm. and the journey is this is the best comment i've ever received is it's like jumping off a cliff and assembling the parachute on the way down. (laughs) That's for sure. So if you're not ready for that level of risk, don't don't go down that path. Yeah, there's lots of, um, like I remember in a a software business that I've started with a co-founder a couple of years ago, when we first started it, we were working, you know, sort of anywhere between eight and 10 hours a day in our like, you know, nine to five type job. And then we'd go home and, have dinner and then we'd spend another, um, you know, probably six hours to eight hours working on that. And I remember, I distinctly remember having a meeting with my nine to five boss at one point. And um, he said to me, he sort of opened the meeting by saying, you look like shit. (laughs) (laughs) Are you, are are you sleeping? You you look like you're not sleeping. And I was like, Sleep's overrated. <laughs> it is. It is. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, sleep's so important. You know, it gives you the energy, blah, blah, blah. You know, really... Sp- and I said, the problem with sleep is that I can't get anything done while I'm sleeping. Correct. And he, he just couldn't understand, like, the... I don't know. I don't even know how to... Like, the that that would be something that somebody would think of. Yeah. 
and, and it's and it's very true. It's very true. Uh, when people are sleeping, that is usually the the best time that you are most successful and yeah. most productive because you do not have the constant digital disruptions that you get during the day. Yeah, that's right. So let's let's move into some you know advertising and marketing type questions. So thinking back to the first time you actively seeked out your first clients, what did you do to, to drum up interest? How did you get people interested in Yellow Market and what you do? Uh, we, we did a couple of things. We did some online advertising and Google testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, I worked out a way to go into the back end of Google AdWords just to get some data. Yep. Carried out a, a couple of Google AdWords testings. Uh, and also went through the Facebook channels, LinkedIn, and just got drummed up some interest. We actually had, within four weeks of testing through Google AdWords, we knew we were onto a really good concept when we had about 800 requests in a day from all over the world. So we knew we were onto something. We had to shut that ad down because it was collecting so much data. So yep. that, that was a positive but it was also overwhelming as well. Uh, but basically, you just got to get on the phone and start calling people, anyone you know. And I just basically got on the phone and started cold calling people. Mm, okay. And how do you make clients feel welcome when they first sign up? We provide a automated welcome message mm-hmm. from one of our email accounts. I also mostly personally call all our new clients mm-hmm. and or if not, I do send them a welcome email and thank them for even their just inquiry. Mm-hmm. And also our dedicated asset managers contact that customer straight away. Yep. The way that they feel special is probably the response time that we give them mm-hmm. in regards to their request and also the support that we provide as well. Okay, great. And um, you sort of touched on this a little bit already, but how do social media services like Facebook or LinkedIn, Instagram, etc., how do they assist with growth and awareness of Yellow Market? They help out a lot because it's minimal input, but you can get a really big output out of it. Mm-hmm. So I've found that using basically, you know, the social media media channels of today is the world's database. And you can reach people digitally with minimal input. So Facebook, for me, LinkedIn's probably our our greatest one uh, because it's like-minded, same industry type people. Mm -hmm. So we find LinkedIn probably the easiest for us, but Facebook's always great as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Facebook's got two-thirds of the world online on the the platform now. So um, reaching people in different languages is quite easy Mm -hmm. and also different geographical locations. So one of the things that I talked to um, Marshall about in the previous show was around LinkedIn and some of the changes that they've made in the last sort of six or 12 months, the introduction of video and, um, you know, sort of improving the algorithm for what you see in your feed when you log in and that kind of thing. Are these things that you've noticed? Are they things that, you know, play a part in how you use LinkedIn? Absolutely. Uh it it's changed and it and it it's looking and working similar to Facebook. I've noticed in the past six to twelve months. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the algorithms is when if you're looking at a at a company mm-hmm. or you're looking at a potential customer or someone's looking at you, 
I've found that their company usually pops up or there's a distraction that you get on LinkedIn. So I have noticed those changes, but there are some quite good changes on there as well. Uh, the training section, we really like. Our asset manage- managers utilise that mm-hmm. uh, service, which I think is a good thing. Um, and also, not for me in particular, but for people out there on LinkedIn, I think it's a really good recruitment tool as well. So mm-hmm. I've noticed they've really pushed that change and it's helped a lot of people than the normal Seek or you know Jora or Indeed. So I think, yep. I think that's helped a lot. Okay. That's good. That's really interesting, actually. Um, so what was some advertising or marketing that you did that wasn't as successful as you'd hoped? And what did you learn from that? We did a MailChimp campaign uh, 12 months into the business. Mm-hmm. We thought we had the message right on the campaign, but I think we got it drastically wrong. Yeah, okay. uh, and the reason I say that is because some of the opt-outs on the campaign and some of the comments uh, really... Oh, it wasn't a personal attack, mm-hmm. but it was pretty disgruntling from right, okay. what we So I found that with, with MailChimp in particular, you just need to screen and check all those, uh, that database or those people you're trying to reach and just ensure that they're, they're willing to accept or they've accepted or signed into it previously. So mm. that, well, that's key. I think it's illegal if you don't anyway. Yeah, well, I know, um, so ever since the, the changes in Europe around privacy, mm. um, MailChimp now um, kind of double opts in everybody. So um, the example I've given before is that, you know, you can go to my website and sign up um, to, um, to get notified when I, uh, my next webinar is available. Mm-hmm. Um, and when somebody does that, even though they're putting their details in and saying, yes, I want to be in there, MailChimp will then send them an email that says, are you sure you really want to be on this mailing list. Mm. So these days MailChimp, you know, you really have to double opt in in order to, to get those um, those emails or be on those mailing lists, which I think is a good thing from um, a, a customer's perspective mm. because, you know, like we, we've we seen um, email open rates drop from, you know, like 80 or 90% 10 years ago, 15 years ago to, um, you know, in some cases like 5 or 10% now and get you know, really very little traction. Um, but um, obviously not my clients mm. because they get amazing results. Of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. Um, they do actually. We've had, we had some really great results from one recently. Um, yeah. But um, there is um, obviously, it's, it's not how it used to be. And I think the only way that um, services like MailChimp and, and the like can continue to be successful and useful for businesses is if they implement those kind of things to really make sure that people are committed to the idea of getting emails. Mm. Otherwise, they'll just continue to opt in and then opt out again straight away. Yeah. Um, so g- taking things the other way, what was some advertising or marketing that you did that was incredibly successful, um, maybe more successful than you thought it would be? And what did you learn from that? The... I've always found that Google AdWords is expensive, but I found it to be really successful. And the reason is the data collected from a geographical region and age, sex of the person, mm-hmm. uh, how many times they've clicked is really useful. Mm-hmm. And I've found that once you are able to secure certain keywords, 
you can hit a market or a location that may not have, in our instances, the equipment support or service that they require for their machinery. Mm -hmm. And we've found that a really useful tool for not only prospecting, but also collecting actual facts of, okay, with growth-wise, is this a good location to target? And what are these customers experiencing or what are their challenges where we can assist them? Yeah, okay. Um, what's been the most valuable free tool that you've used either to promote or create for Yellow Market? One of our initial websites was probably WordPress. Yep. And the reason why I say WordPress is because even a person that doesn't have a lot of technical experience can basically start a website with drop and drag functionality and, and get it up and running within the space of 48 hours. So from an entrepreneur's perspective that's testing if their idea is any good, uh, you should be able to achieve that in 48 hours. So with a tool like WordPress or Squarespace where mm -hmm. you can build a website within 48 hours without having to have an extensive technical background, I found to be probably the best tool. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So what's the next big thing for Yellow Market? We're working on some really big partnerships with some uh, original equipment manufacturers, which will catapult us into the stratosphere, we're hoping. But also uh, our data sets is probably the big, next big thing for us, which could change the industry. Our overall goal is to reduce downtime and we're working on some predictive analytics yep. which could reduce the market from $650 billion, we're hoping to achieve it to a third of that. Wow. So that, that's the next big thing for us. There's a lot of water to go under the bridge before that. Mm -hmm. But also probably the next big thing for us is uh, just continuing to build with our existing partners, customers and clients and really providing them options and value. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the key to us. And our tagline's forever moving and we live and die by that. Yeah. So if you would like to learn more about Yellow Market, head to yellowmarket.com and that's yellow spelt with one L because you're a startup and you've got to be different, right? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and obviously, you can also look up Blake Lawrence on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect in a B2B capacity. So we'll close the show today with uh, a quote, and this one comes from Peter Drucker. The aim of marketing is to know and understand the customer so well, the product or service fits them and sells itself. It's a great one. Until next time, keep growing. <laughs>